Section 5 of Social Life in England, 1750-1850, by F. J. Folks Jackson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Lecture 2. George Crabbe, Part 2. Let us consider how Crabbe's experiences of Aldborough appear in his poems. I will take most of my extracts from his early poem, The Village, but a few will be from the borough, which did not appear until more than twenty years later. In the village, Crabbe boldly asks, From truth and nature shall we widely stray, where Virgil, not where fancy, leads the way, and declines to follow the fashion of speaking of rural life as the height of felicity. He says, I grant indeed that fields and flocks have charms, for him that grazes or for him that farms but when amid such pleasing scenes i trace the poor laborious natives of the place then shall i dare these real ills to hide in tinsel trappings of poetic pride in this spirit he describes the barren coast of east suffolk not then the haunt of the holiday-maker and the golfer but the battleground of the smuggler and the preventive men the home of a bold and artful, surly, savage race, who only skilled to take the finny tribe, the yearly dinner or centennial bribe, wait on the shore, and as the waves run high, on the tossed vessel bend their eager eye, which to the coast directs its venturous way, theirs or the ocean's miserable prey this description of the barren land about the coast well illustrates crabbe's power of observation low where the heath with withering brake grown o'er lends the light turf that warms the neighbouring poor from thence a length of burning sand appears where the thin harvest waves its withered ears rank weeds that every art and care defy reign o'er the land and rob the blighted rye there thistles stretch their prickly arms afar, and to the ragged infant threaten war. There poppies nodding mock the hope of toil, here the blue bugloss paints the sterile soil. Hardy and high above the slender sheaf, the slimy mallow waves her silken leaf. O'er the young shoot the charlock throws a shade, and clasping tears cling round the sickly blade with mingled tints the rocky coasts abound and the sad splendour vainly shines around we have already heard of the workhouse hospital and the potent quack who attended to the sick let us now listen to crabbe's description of the young clergyman who ministered to the afflicted of his village a jovial youth who thinks his sunday task as much as god or man can fairly ask the rest he gives to loves and labours light to fields the morning and to feasts the night a sportsman keen he shouts through half the day and skilled at whist devotes the night to play but i must reluctantly forbear to quote more from the village and ask you to turn your attention to two passages in the borough which show what sort of men lived in crabbe's native town and also indicate the power our author has in depicting two very different characters i will take peter grimes the fisherman first 
Grimes was one of those human monsters who delight in cruelty, and the late eighteenth and early nineteenth century, to its shame, furnished victims for its exercise in workhouse apprentices. The guardians of the overflowing workhouses of London were accustomed to get rid of their superfluous numbers by binding children as apprentices to masters, who practically became the owners of the little victims they were paid to teach. Peter had heard there were in London then, still have their being, workhouse clearing men, who undisturbed by feelings just or kind would perish boys to needy tradesmen bind. They in their want a trifling sum would take, and toiling slaves of piteous orphans make. Grimes did several of these wretched boys to death by his cruelty, which was notorious in the borough, but the shocking thing was that nobody troubled to interfere. None put the question, Peter, dost thou give the boy his food? What man, the lad, must live? Consider, Peter, let the child have bread. He'll serve thee better if he's stroked and fed. None reasoned thus, and some on hearing cries said calmly, Grimes is at his exercise. At last Grimes, who seems to have been never quite sane in his brutality, went mad, and died raving at visions of his aged father and the boys he had done to death. More inviting is a picture of another fisherman, the mayor of the borough. He was a fisher from his earliest day, and placed his nets within the borough bay, where by his skates, his herrings, and his soles, he lived nor dreamed of corporation doles. At last he saved two hundred and forty pounds, twelve hundred dollars, and asked a friend what to do with it. The friend suggests, put it out on interest. Oh, but, says Daniel, that's a dangerous plan. He may be robbed like any other man. The friend tells Daniel that he will be paid five per cent each year. What good is that, quoth Daniel, for tis plain, if part I take there can but part remain. With great difficulty the principle of a mortgage is explained, and at last, much amazed, was that good man. Indeed, said he, with gladdening eye, will money breed? How have I lived? I grieve with all my heart for my late knowledge of this precious art. Five pounds for every hundred will he give? And then the hundred? I begin to live. Such was the simplicity of the good folk of Aldborough, and so little news of the great world reached the place, that when Crabbe, at the age of twenty-five or six, went to London in 1780, he had never heard of the genius and tragic fate of Chatterton. I shall pass over the terrible year our aspirant for fame spent in the metropolis. It is a matter of personal pride to me to quote the following passage from The Life. The only acquaintance he had on entering London was a Mrs. Burcham, who had been in early youth a friend of Miss Elmy's, and who was now the wife of a linen draper in Cornhill. This worthy woman and her husband received him with cordial kindness, then invited him to make their house his home whenever he chose, and as often as he availed himself of this invitation, he was treated with that frank familiarity which cancels the appearance of obligation. Life by the Reverend G. Crabbe. I am glad to think, 
my great-grandparents understood the duty of hospitality at last after a terrible struggle with poverty and the unsuccessful publication of a poem called the candidate crabbe who had hitherto sought for a patron in vain found one in edmund burke it is said that the following lines expressive of the writer's feelings in quitting aldborough satisfied burke that his petitioner was a poet as on their neighbouring beach the swallows stand and wait for favouring winds to leave the land while still for flight the ready wing is spread so waited i the favouring hour and fled fled from those shores where guilt and famine reign and cried ah hapless they who still remain who still remain to hear the ocean roar whose greedy waves devour the lessening shore till some fierce tide with more imperious sway sweeps the low hut and all it holds away when the sad tenant weeps from door to door and begs a poor protection from the poor burke selected two poems the village and the library for publication he introduced crabbe to fox and also to reynolds the latter brought him to dr johnson and when burke heard that crabbe desired to be ordained he induced dr young bishop of norwich to overlook his unacademic education and to admit him to the ministry lord thurlow himself an east anglian had at first refused to receive crabbe but now treated him with much kindness and gave him one hundred pounds five hundred dollars so crabbe returned to aldborough a clergyman a very different position from that which he had occupied on leaving and was shortly summoned thence to be the domestic chaplain to the duke of rutland on the recommendation of his firm friend mr burke from the duke's seat at beaver the village was published after it had been submitted to burke and johnson naturally crabbe's sentiments about rustic happiness and virtue accorded with the views of the worthy doctor but it is pleasing to remark the kindness which made him at the height of his fame labour to improve the work of the younger poet very characteristic are johnson's corrections of crabbe's manuscript here is how crabbe writes at the commencement of the village in fairer scenes where peaceful pleasures spring titirus the pride of mantuan swains might sing but charmed by him or smitten with his views shall modern poets court the mantuan muse from truth and nature shall we widely stray where fancy leads or virgil led the way from johnson's hands little remains unchanged on mincio's banks in caesar's bounteous reign if titirus found the golden age again must sleepy bards the flattering dreams prolong mechanic echoes of the mantuan song from truth and nature shall we widely stray where virgil not where fancy leads the way i cannot feel very certain myself that the poet or his corrector got the concluding line right End of section five